0: All right. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. Let me pray. Lord, although I am here preaching to your people, it's not important that the people hear me. It's not important that they see me. Even though you will use me here, it's mostly important that they hear you, and that they see you. As we open up your word, we open up our hearts. May we not take for granted the ability we have to hear the word expounded upon because there are so many Christians for various reasons around the world who cannot hear the word this morning, who cannot get to church this morning, whether it be persecution or sickness So, God, may we recognize that to whom much is given, much is required. So, may we be hearers of this word or doers of this word and not just hearers. And may I not only be a speaker of this word, but also a doer of what I'm going to speak about. And as usual, we need the help of the Holy Spirit, the comforter, the one whom Jesus sent to not only be with us, but to live in us. Holy Spirit, teach us the things of God. Then give us the desire and the ability to live it out one day, one moment at a time. For it's in the name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. Amen. Twenty years ago, when I was 26 years old, and I was praying about starting a church in Franklin, Tennessee, That would be multiracial. I saw what the Lord was doing, and I just tried to join him in that activity. I didn't ask God to bless what I was doing. I tried to do the things that he was blessing. I saw the stream, and I just jumped on board and let him carry me in the stream. I never wanted to be a pastor. I never wanted to preach the word, but God. Found me and he awakened this desire, he put this calling on my life to not only preach, but to be a pastor. And to not only be a pastor, but to be a church planter who would plant and start a multiracial, multi-economic, what we would call multi-dimensional church in Franklin, Tennessee, 20 years ago. And one of the things that helped me as I was looking at the awesomeness of this calling and feeling very inadequate in the calling because, as John Perkins once said, God will never call you to do something you can do in your own strength. He will always call you to do something that is over your head, so you must depend on him to do it so that when it gets done, he gets all of the glory. So I sat there, and I said, Lord, thank you for your word. He was awakening the text to me like never before. He was putting things in my spirit. But I learned from Jerry Falwell while I was in college that it's a good thing to read the autobiographies of great men and women. Because when you read about their struggles and how they found hope in God and strength in God and provision from God, it will give you courage for the days to come. And so I picked up really uh, the first writings of a great man who would write other books in this particular book explained his entrance into ministry. And when I read this book, and I saw that he too was 25 years old when he took his first pastorate, and he was 26 years old when he began a movement that would not only touch Montgomery, Alabama, but would go around the world I immediately found courage to do what I needed to do because I saw God did it with someone else as far as a young black man. He could do it with me because he's no respecter of persons. And the book was called Stride Toward Freedom, The Montgomery Story, and it was written by Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Uh, And this book helped me so much to do what I needed to do. Um, As you know, Um, Dr. King came to prominence through the Montgomery bus boycott. Uh, A lovely lady by the name of Rosa Parks decided to take a stand one day by sitting down, and as a result of taking a stand by sitting down, a great movement had erupted. You see, uh, Rosa Parks was a seamstress. She'd been working all day, living in the cradle of the Confederacy, which is Montgomery, Alabama, where um, Jefferson Davis was sworn in as the president of the Confederate States of America. And so in this city that is known for great racial tension and divide, right there, God did a movement. And he did it through simple people who was just being themselves, being obedient. And she got on this bus and she sat in the colored section. Now, the colored section was the section that was relegated to the back. And there was normally a sign that said colored section. So she sat in the first seat of the colored section where Negroes were supposed to sit down. And on this particular day, the bus became full. And so as was the custom, when the bus was full and there was no room for white passengers to sit down because all of the white seats were taken, the bus driver would then tell black people to get up out of their seats in the black section and give them to the white passengers. Now, here's the deal. If the back of the bus was filled with all black people and the front of the bus where white people sat was empty, the black people could not go sit in the empty seats. And so they had to stay in the back. And in this particular day, Rosa Parks was not sitting in the white section being rebellious. She was sitting in the black section. The bus driver came to her. There were several people, mainly men, according to the story, who needed a seat. And the bus driver asked for the three people to get up. Two of them got up to give these men their seat in the colored section, but Rosa sat down. She said, my feet are tired. And she stayed there civil disobedience and she was arrested on Thursday, December 1st, 1955. But On this particular night, the black community decided to rally together and say enough is enough. And by the weekend, they had galvanized together and decided that they would boycott the buses on one day, on Monday, as a sign of solidarity to show the white power base that they were not to be messed with. And so they were hoping that by pulling their finances for one day, they could get the attention of the bus company. And so as they got together and they saw that they had success on that day where probably out of uh, I forget how many thousands of African-Americans were in Montgomery, only eight rode the bus that day. So almost 100 percent participation occurred on that day, on that Monday, to the point where the community decided we need to keep this up if we're to see progress happen. And so, what they decided to do was to put a committee together and to select a leader. And that's what I want to read to you right now in the book Stride Toward Freedom. Dr. King wrote The next job was to elect the officers for the new organization. As soon as Bennett, who's another preacher, had opened the nominations for president, Rufus Lewis spoke from the far corner of the room Mr. Chairman, I would like to nominate Reverend Martin Luther King for president. The motion was seconded and carried, and in a matter of minutes, I was unanimously elected. The action had caught me unawares. It had happened so quickly that I did not even have time to think it through. It is probable that if I had, I would have declined the nomination. So that was the beginning of thrusting this preacher who had just been married a little over a year into the spotlight of leading leading this movement that would go local and then global, but he was not seeking that place. But the Lord saw it. The Lord chose him. The people saw it, and he became our leader. So for many, Dr. King is best known for his I Have a Dream speech. But before Dr. King shared his dream with America on August 28, 1963, at the steps of the Lincoln Memorial in Washington, D.C. He wrote a letter from a Birmingham jail earlier that same year on April 16th, 1963. You see, his dream in D.C. was a vision for a better America. However, his letter in Birmingham was a rebuke For a better church. And so many of us like to quote various aspects of I Have a Dream, especially the part where we should not judge one another based on the color of skin but by the content of character. We love that. We should quote that. But there are other things that Dr. King said and wrote things that may have more of a militant edge, things that deal more with social issues and not just personal responsibility. And in this open letter to eight prominent white members of the clergy who considered Dr. King to be an outside agitator because he lived in Atlanta, and they criticized him for coming to Birmingham. And so while he was incarcerated for demonstrating, they wrote him an open letter. And so he responded, and normally he does not answer his critics, but on this particular case, he decided to write And one thing from that letter is, he said, I am in Birmingham because injustice is here. I cannot sit idly by in Atlanta and not be concerned about what happens in Birmingham. Injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. You deplore the demonstrations that are presently taking place in Birmingham. But I am sorry that your statement did not express a similar concern for the condition that brought the demonstrations into being. I am sure that each of you would want to go beyond the superficial social analyst who looks merely at effects and does not grapple with underlying causes. So he's speaking to the church, the church that's criticizing him for doing what Amos did speaking about justice, who's criticizing him for doing what Jesus did, and that is loving your neighbor and putting yourself in harm's way to see others delivered. And so, Dr. King called attention not only to the civil disobedience that he partook in, which was non-violent, thank God, but he also said we have to look at the things behind the scene that is causing people to demonstrate in the first place. Because he once said, where there is darkness— crimes will be committed. And the one who commits the crime should be held accountable. But we should not only hold accountable the one who commits the crimes, we should also hold accountable the one who creates the darkness. And so Dr. King was a powerful orator, but he was also a man who was willing to put his life where his words were. Dr. King would eventually get out of prison And he would lead a demonstration that would break the back of segregation in Birmingham and beyond. This movement would end up confronting water hoses, police dogs, and police brutality, all while being captured on national television. King had come from prison to prick the conscience of the nation. So from this, we see that sometimes great leaders emerge from bad situations. Great leaders are birthed and can come forth even out of prison. And so we don't want to look down where someone has come from because it's not so much where you come from, but it's where you're going. And not only was he marching towards freedom, but he was being a true leader because there were thousands, if not millions, following him towards that course as well. You know, in John chapter 1 verse 46, when Jesus had come on the scene, They told uh, Nathaniel, I believe, come follow the Messiah with us. Uh, He's from Nazareth. And he said, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Because Nazareth is not that place where leaders come from. In other words, it's the hood. So can anything good (laughs) come from the hood? You had better believe it. And can anyone with vision come out of prison? You better believe that as well. Look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 4, verse 13. I promise I won't be before you long, but if you give me your undivided attention, I think we all may be able to get something out of this. Reading from the New King James Version, the Bible says, Better a poor and wise youth than an old and foolish king who will be admonished no more. Verse 14. For he comes out of prison to be king, although he was born poor in his kingdom. I saw all the living who walk under the sun. They were with the second youth who stands in his place. There was no end of all the people over whom he was made king. Yet those who come afterward will not rejoice in him. Surely this also is vanity and grasping for the wind. In this passage, we see two kings being contrasted, one younger, one older, one foolish, one wise, one who seemed to have the favor of the people and the other who did not. Just by way of background and to be quick with this, King Solomon is the writer of the book of Ecclesiastes. He also gave us the book of Proverbs, as well as the Song of Solomon. But this work is probably the work that he writes near the end of his life. As a man who has used up much of his life with frivolous living. Because as you read the book of Ecclesiastes, you see a man who is searching for the significance of it all. But the irony of the whole thing is that Solomon was endowed by God to be the wisest man who had ever lived. And not only was he endowed with the gift of wisdom, wisdom beyond any of his peers outside of Jesus who would come through his lineage, but he was also endowed with great wealth like no other person who had ever lived. So you would think being the wisest and the smartest man who had ever lived, but also having any and everything he wanted and at his fingertips, you would think he would be happy. But in reality, in the midst of his blessings, there was this line of cursing because he had misappropriated the blessing. He took his eyes off the blessed ore and started focusing on himself and the things of this world. Over and over again in Ecclesiastes, you see the phrase under the sun, under the sun, under the sun. Because this man, with all of this wisdom, started looking at things that were seen. And he was let down time and time again, which caused him to say life is meaningless and life is empty. It is vanity of vanities because his focus was under the sun. It was a worldly temporal focus, and he was made for more than that. So the person who is the most miserable in life is the Christian who knows better but is living wrong whose focus is not spiritual but worldly. That is the most miserable person in the world, and he is miserable until he comes to chapter 12, and he says, this is the conclusion of the matter. I figured it out now. We ought to fear God and keep his commandments. We ought to love the Lord and obey him and enjoy what he's given to us. That is the meaning of life. And so in chapter 4, he compares these two kings as he would sit and ponder many thoughts, many great things. He was such a brilliant person. And so he's talking about two kings. Now, Strong Tower, I want to call your attention to four stereotypes that need to be dismantled. Four stereotypes that are dismantled from this passage. We know that a stereotype is a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person People or thing. I'm going to say it one more time. A stereotype is a widely held but fixed and oversimplified image or idea of a particular type of person, people, or thing. All right, let me get uh, right where you live, coming down your street. I'm going to drop the mail off in your box. It's going to have your name on it. Here, let's make this practical here. Here's a stereotype all black people can't swim. Yeah, you, you can laugh at me. It's okay. you like, man, can I laugh at that? Yeah, I got a couple more. Black folk don't swim. We stay away from the water. No, that, that, that's an oversimplification. And uh, I was once a part of that stereotype until I got delivered about three years ago. So thank the Lord. I was afraid of the water. I'd get in there and swim like a brick. I would go right to the bottom. Yeah. But uh, what about Asian people? No martial arts. That's a stereotype. You know, I watch a lot of kung fu movies. I have probably 300 kung fu movies in my repertoire. And sometimes prejudice takes over. I'll see an Asian fellow, and I'll be looking at his body and his build wondering, does he know karate? (laughs) Well, how about another stereotype? Uh, White people can't dance. Somebody said, wait a minute, Pastor, that's true. No, 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 But isn't it an anomaly when you see a white dude just going for it on the dance floor? You're like, man, we don't normally see that. You ever see those big choir productions and people up there swinging? They may have an integrated choir, and, you know, everybody's on beat and clapping. Then there's two or three white people over on the side. What's going on over here now? What's going on? You see, fear feeds our ignorance, and ignorance continues to perpetuate stereotypes that when we come into the world, we inherit, we, we, we breathe the air of stereotypes. It's taught to us subconsciously. I mean, we just come to see that these things are true until we get into relationships and realize that we can't generalize a people group or person. And in this passage, there are just a, a few stereotypes that are dismantled. Number one, poor people are dumb. That's a stereotype. Poor people are dumb. That's a stereotype. Pastor, why is that false from this passage? Because it says in verse 13, better a poor and wise youth. Y'all, when the plain sense makes sense, seek no other sense. Just let the Bible say what the Bible says. Culture tells us if you're poor, you're not wise, you're dumb, you're not smart. And the opposite is, if you're rich, that means you're smart or that you're wise. Y'all know that ain't true. There are a lot of rich people that are not wise, and there are a lot of poor people who are wise, because we see in this passage that you can be poor and wise at the same time. So therefore, having wisdom isn't always about how to make more money. Wisdom, the Hebrew word, really means skilled living. Because when you have skilled living, you can live off of a $2 budget or a $200,000 budget. But if you don't have wisdom from the Lord, you're going to squander $200,000 just as much as anyone would squander $2. And so this youth was poor, and the Lord says he was wise. So let's kick that stereotype to the curb. Uh, we don't know why he's poor. It could be through systemic oppression. Solomon deals with that in chapter 5. He deals with it in chapter 4 about oppression, and it happens. Or he could have experienced a tragedy of some kind where he experienced death. He never received an inheritance. We don't know. He may have lost a job, never could get employed again. Nevertheless, God is still with him, and God is using him as an example. Stereotype number two that needs to be dismantled. The penal system is just. The penal system is always right. When they arrest people and book them and give them sentences, they're always right. We just blindly trust the penal system. That's a stereotype that needs to be debunked and torn down because this young man who is wise comes out of prison to be king. So if he's wise, that means he is living skillfully, not breaking the law to be put into jail. But sometimes people who are poor can't have legal representation. Sometimes they're set up by people with power to serve prison sentences for crimes that they never committed. And so that could have happened with this young man because he was born poor in this kingdom or in this system. And the system from all the way back until now is not tilted towards the poor As a matter of fact, according to James, it will take advantage of the poor and exploit the poor. And so the penal system is not just all the time because not everyone who goes to prison is a criminal. You remember Joseph, don't you? He went to prison for something he did not do. You remember Daniel, he was thrown into prison for taking a stand for God. Jeremiah thrown into prison. John the Baptist was in prison for truth. Jesus was in prison for sinners who broke the law, and all of the apostles went to jail for standing up for truth. And so just because you go to jail, that doesn't mean you've done something wrong. I say that to say this, sometimes innocent people go to prison simply because they are poor and oppressed. In the book, The New Jim Crow, Michelle Alexander writes, what has changed since the collapse of Jim Crow has less to do with the basic structure of of our society than with the language we use to justify it. In the era of so-called colorblindness, it is no longer socially permissible to use race explicitly as a justification for discrimination, exclusion, and social contempt. So we don't. Rather than rely on race, we use our criminal justice system to label people of color criminals, or today's word, thugs, and then engage all the practices we supposedly left behind. Today, it is perfectly legal to discriminate against criminals in nearly all the ways that it was once legal to discriminate, to discriminate against African Americans. Once you're labeled a felon, the old forms of discrimination, like employment discrimination, housing discrimination, denial of the right to vote, denial of educational opportunity, and exclusion from jury service are suddenly legal. As a criminal, you have scarcely more rights and arguably less respect than a black man living in Alabama at the height of Jim Crow. We have not ended, ended racial caste in America. We have merely redesigned it. And the penal system is a big business. People make money off the of prisons. They're building them. And in order to build them, make money, you got to put people in them. And so you come up with bogus charges and, When a guy is selling crack cocaine, his sentence is greater than someone selling cocaine in the suburbs. And so prisons are stacked and packed with minorities, black and brown primarily, committing the same crimes that many of our white brothers are committing, but getting locked up and spending more time in jail, according to statistics. This is not just something I'm feeling. This is proven. And so I remember even... It was a gentleman I was ministering to in prison, and uh, he always needed money to put on his books. And I'm like, man, I thought when they went to prison, they had everything they need. They had the meals, and they had everything. Now, it may not be the best, but they needed to have the system where you gave them money, which the prison taxed the money that you gave so they can buy goods from other companies that they're in unison with within the penal system. So, it is a business stereotype number three old people are smart that's a stereotype not all old people are smart older people can be set in their ways and therefore not be teachable and if you're not teachable you're not smart the minute you stop being teachable is the day you need to stop living Because life is about learning. We're we're, we're constant learners, lifelong learners. But this king, the Bible says, he could be admonished no more. No one could teach him anything. And when you get to the place where nobody can teach you anything, you are foolish. So old people are not always smart. That gray hair doesn't always mean wisdom. Stereotype number four, poor people can't do better. Because if you're poor, you can't do better. Just stay in poverty. You know, just just accept your plight. And a lot of times, the poor, we can be so brainwashed and so inundated with the system that we speak negative words to one another, saying, you'll never amount to anything. You'll never get out of the projects. You'll never graduate from high school. You'll never go to college. You'll never do this. You'll never do that. And so we need to confront that stereotype and say, no, no. Poor people don't have to accept poverty. They don't have to stay poor, especially when they have the means and the ability to change their situation. Because this poor man eventually came up out of poverty to be king. In other words, his entire life changed because he did not accept the fact that because he was born poor that he had to stay poor. And so the church needs to come by, and we need to stop talking all this prosperity gospel mess to middle-income and upper-income upper folk, and we need to start talking the gospel of empowerment, the gospel of liberty to the poor because Jesus came to set the poor free. We need to teach them the principles of financial stewardship in the kingdom of God. We need to teach them because, again, there's that other uh, stereotype that if you're poor, you're lazy. Now, a lot of poor people work hard, but they're caught up in the system, and they need somebody to come along and teach them how the system works so they don't stay in that system anymore that's what wise people do that's what sophia's heart is doing that's what salome clinic is doing we just not only want to help you in the moment we want to help you in the long term but there are some people that want to keep the poor right here on a string so pastor man all right man what is the point of this message pastor well as i wrap it up here's the point here's the point number one You can be like the second king in this passage. This guy is my hero because he did not let anything stop him from being what God had put it in his spirit to be. And he did not use his circumstances, his situation. He could have played the blame game and stayed down. But he rose up out of obscurity to a place of prominence. And not only did he get out for himself, he was a king that other people appreciated, so he brought other people out. He lived his life to serve others and not simply to serve himself. So I would like to be like this second king who overcame great obstacles in order to become a leader. And this second king reminds me of Nelson Mandela, the great freedom fighter, from South Africa who resisted apartheid. That when he came out of prison after being there for 27 years for something, for, for, for resisting the apartheid movement, and he was put in prison and moved to three different places before spending most of his time on Robbins Island, 27 years. But he had more power in the prison cell than de Klerk had in the palace because the people recognized he was a leader. And so as he came out of prison and became the president, the first black president of South Africa, he shows that this passage, it is possible. You can come from prison. You can come from any bad circumstance, no matter what your mother said you can or cannot do. You can can rise above what your teacher may have said. They put you in the corner and say you can't learn. You can do it because God is on your side pulling for you. You don't have to buy the lie that this is all you can be and you got to stay here and you got to do this and live like... This. No, no, no. There's greatness in you because a great one made you and the spirit of the resurrected Christ is in you beckoning you always get up from there. Come on up from there. And not only the way Jesus got up, we get up too. So when a leader gets up, a leader's getting other people up too. Oh, I love this king. I want to be like this king. But also... You can be like Dr. King was in history. Now, I know that's not popular around some places because there are some people that don't even want to acknowledge Dr. King, don't even feel like he should have a holiday. But that's all right. Let the haters hate. They're going to always hate. But there are many of us who look to this man who recognized his mortality, who recognized that he was simply a vessel that it was his God working through him and in spite of him that was able to do great things with him. And when I read his story and when I see his humility, it gives me hope to say, "Man, God, you can do great things with me because he turned his prison into a pulpit in Birmingham and he turned his cell into a sermon. So what's your excuse? We can use any and everything to give glory to God where we are. We don't have to wait to get to the other side before we testify on that side about the goodness, grace, and truth of God. And he did that. He once said that greatness is determined by service. Oh, he was a servant leader. He was the time man of the year. He had won the Nobel Peace Prize, the most recognizable African-American man, probably outside of Muhammad Ali, that lived during that time. But yet when he died, he's in Memphis helping sanitation workers. I see Christ in him. Critics, you know my email address. Go ahead and send it to me. Let's talk about that movie Selma real quick that didn't get any Oscar nods for the actors. Oh, boy. What time is it? They did get best picture now, but come on, come on, come on. All right, Pastor, let it go. Hmm. There's a nut in Williamson County that's sitting on one of the school boards that wants to change the holiday from being called King Holiday to Civil Rights Holiday. Wow. And you think that it still doesn't exist? Oh, I know some of my rational thinkers are saying, no, pastor, they're just being objective, cognitive thinkers. Now, they're being closed-minded, asinine, and prejudiced in their thinking. Ooh, it's, it's quiet. Amen walls, new walls, new paint, new paint on the walls. Can you say Amen. Greatness is determined by service. He said anybody can be great because anybody can serve. You don't have to have a college degree to serve. You don't have to make your subject and verb agree to serve. You only need a heart full of grace, a soul generated by love. So, man, I want to be like the second king in this passage. I want to be like Dr. King. Man, but above all, but above all, but above all, you can be like the king of all kings, Jesus Christ. Christ. Oh, that ought to be, there's a clap right there, there's a clap right there. We can be king. Because if there's anybody that demonstrated that greatness is found in serving, it is the one who is the most high that came down to become the most low so that he could don the robes of humanity and die on a cross built for somebody else and for the sins of the world. And he did that for us. He limited the full expression of his deity, to be cloaked in humanity and to live in poverty. He did that for us. The one who was rich became poor so that we, through his poverty, might be made rich spiritually. Ah, man, Jesus. And so no wonder he says in Matthew chapter 20, verse 27, whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. John thirteen fourteen: if I then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. So to be a king, Jesus redefines it. It's not about lording over people. It's about serving under people. And if we had more servants, more things would get done. So, Lord, would you send a revival of servanthood where we act like the king, the king in this passage. Thank you for Dr. King who served. But above all, Lord, thank you for you who served that set an example for all of us.